0: in business. All right. Welcome to our Facebook Live, people. I'm sitting, so I'm a little bit lower than normal, but it should work. So good morning, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. But let's... Uh, first, uh, we've been learning some principles as... God has been revealing to us in his word, as he will, if you get seriously in God's word, you're going to come across paradoxes. A paradox is an apparent contradiction. Two things that don't seem like they can be true at the same time, and yet the Bible teaches them both, and therefore they do not contradict each other. Although they might, you might not be able to understand how they don't. And so we've talked about that. So I'm going to talk about a couple of helpful hints as we approach Scripture this morning. <clears throat> so up above, look, and you'll see the St. Louis arches again. There's the, these two truths that are taught in Scripture whenever these paradoxes arise. The one that we've been dealing with mostly lately is the paradox of God's sovereignty on one hand. One of the pillars of the St. Louis arches up there taught in scripture is God's sovereignty. And right in the middle of that word, sovereign, is the word reign, R-E-I-G-N. That means that God is the king over everything. So God is absolutely sovereign. He is the creator. He created, he controls, he has a plan, his purpose, his will, his plan is going to be what happens. So that's taught clearly in scripture. And on the other hand, it also, that raises question, but if he's all sovereign and he made me the way I am, and he even determined, if you will, what I do and what I think and the decisions that I make, but yet he holds me responsible for them. I made them not as a robot, but I made them Freely. How do you balance those two apparently contradictory truths? Well, we don't understand it. The the solution to how you put those two things together are up in the clouds. They are uh these two pillars of truth, clearly taught in scripture, are now I kind of came up with this little phrase. Kim and I talk about this stuff for literally hours. And we came up with a couple little phrases. The first one I kind of came up with. But after you preach for so long and read so much stuff, you don't know if it's your original thing or not. So I'm not saying this is original. I'm just saying it came to me that day. But it's helpful. Um, These two truths are not contradictory. But they're complementary. I think that's helpful. And then Kim came up with this one. They're not incompatible. They're just incomprehensible. And when we use the word biblically, incomprehensible, we do not mean you can't understand them at all. It means you can't understand something fully. But you can't understand it so far up. But then all of a sudden when it gets up into the clouds with some of these things, only God understands it fully. And so that's, I hope, a few helpful hints. Once you get comfortable with this way of thinking, you're going to handle what the Bible says a lot easier. And now let's talk for a moment before we get into our text about the context and the flow of Paul's argument right now in Romans chapter 9. God's promise. See, the the issue is he's, he's primarily speaking to the Jews in the Roman church because they're having trouble understanding how the Gentiles could just come in across the border and not have to become a citizen the way they became citizens, not have to be uh, part of the Jewish nation. They could just come in, not have to obey the Mosaic law, not have to uh, become Jewish before they could become Christian. They were having a real hard time accepting that, and that was causing division in the church. So that, that's a big part of what Paul is dealing with. And then as we get to verse 6 in chapter 9, you'll see Paul is struggling. What went wrong? Did God, who gave his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did all that Moses and the Exodus and got him into the promised land, he did all this for them, all of a sudden did God fail and then go to, have to go to plan B? Well, let's. Th- th- what Paul teaches is that God's promise was never just for the Jews. If the Jewish people would have understood Scripture properly in the Old Testament, they would have seen that the promise was first to the Jews, but then it would open up to the Gentiles. God's promise had not failed. Look at verse 6 and 7. We read, But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so for God's own purposes, he is sovereignly fulfilling his promise through, listen, through the unbelief Of the Jews, and through the rejection by the Jews, by the majority of Jews, of Jesus. And so, the salvation of a remnant of the Jews, as we're going to see today, and many, many Gentiles, that is how God has chosen, and you're going to see that He is doing right now. That is how He's revealing His plan of salvation. So, let's begin reading back in verse 21, and then we'll pick up the the exposition in verse 25. So verse 21, from last week, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? Of course he does. He's the potter. Verse 22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's talking about Pharaoh and everybody else who is a vessel prepared for wrath or destruction. What's the answer to that question? Well, why? Why would God do that? And he gives us an answer in verse 23. He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So that's Paul's big point so far. Why the Jews should accept the Gentiles in, because he's explained the essence of the gospel, that it is by faith that a person is saved by Jesus. And so the Jews have just got to get over it. And you can certainly sympathize with them. And this illustration breaks down, but if you think of us as Americans, my grandpa came over to America at the age of 16 back in the early 1900s. We have his paperwork from Ellis Island. He landed. He did it the right way. He never saw his family in the old country again. He just came over, um, landed, did everything he needed to do to become a citizen of the United States and then our family, now I'm a, I'm a full citizen of the United States because of that. My Irish ancestors came a generation earlier um, the same way. So here I am, a citizen of the United States, and then we now have people coming into the United States through open borders, and you can see why Americans get offended by that. Okay? Now this illustration will break down because that's Illegal. In, in this, the gospel, it isn't illegal. It's like in the Constitution it says, yes, you can come in, you will come in this way first, but then all of a sudden there's going to be a whole bunch of people coming in and it's going to be legal because it's right in our Constitution that if they just come in and they do, they do this or that, in this case the gospel faith, they will be let in. But the, the Jews missed that in the Old Testament. And as you're going to see, as we unpack this, you're going to see the problems that that created in their misunderstanding of what the gospel even is. And so let's talk, first of all, as we get into verse 25 and following, the selective situation. God went went through a selection process. Okay? Verse 25. As he says, also in Hosea. So he's just layering upon what we studied last week. He says in Hosea, the prophet, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. They will receive the sonship. And then he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, as God promised Abraham, watch this. It is the remnant that will be saved. Not all Israel is Israel. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Now, if there's somebody in here who's a really serious student of the Bible, and you're thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, make sure you go back and study the context of Hosea and Isaiah, and before you try to figure it out here. What Paul is simply doing is taking, they had their own context, and he's taking a principle out of them that we're talking about today. And it would take too much time for everything else we're going to try to cover this morning for me to go back and describe the exact situation in Israel during the time of Hosea and Isaiah. It, it, I don't, I've made the decision that I don't think it's critical for us to understand Paul's point by doing all that work. Okay? So that's a decision I made. If you want to study that on your own, um, that'd be great. Do it. But we're just going to move on and take what point Paul is trying to make here out of it. Okay, what his point is so far, well, let's continue with the Isaiah prophecy. Uh, Verse 28 For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. The Lord's going to do what he's going to do. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, had left to us a posterity or a seed, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody would have been destroyed. If God wouldn't have chosen to mercifully save some, everybody would be destroyed. We talked about that 2 weeks ago, didn't we? So what he's saying, I think could be summed up in this, that the gospel, the good news, salvation is not by pedigree. We've been making that point all along, haven't we? That it's not you you it's not being born into or becoming a member of a group that believes that it is the group. Do you know any groups like that? Yeah. Uh, So I've written down some, just some in alphabetical order, some uh, groups that exist today. I'm just going to name a few of the thousands of denominations within Christianity that are on the earth. And so, And some of these people believe that their group is the group. I don't think anybody in here believes that. I I don't think we struggle particularly with that. Am I right? Is there anybody in here who believes that the only people on the earth that are saved are congregationalists? No. Thank God we've grown beyond that. Okay, but And not all these groups do, but some do or someone in that group might think this way. So let's say you were born into the assemblies of God or the Amish, or the Baptist, or the Brethren, or the Buddhist, or the Catholic, or the Congregational, or the Jewish, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Methodist, or the Mormon, or the Muslim. Yeah, I'm mentioning Christian groups, pseudo-Christian groups, non-Christian groups. Any group can believe that they're the group, and that causes problems. And that is a hindrance to understanding what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So that's, I think, a big part of Paul's point. It is not by your pedigree. You're not born into it. Okay? And God, in his infinite wisdom, decided that the best way to carry out his plan to reveal and display his glory in his creation has been to create some vessels for wrath as we studied about Pharaoh he he decided to do that he just decided i don 't understand it, but that was his choice and vessels of mercy and he ordained the rejection of Messiah by most of Israel. He ordained that. Keep your left hand here. Turn ahead just a couple. We'll be here in a few weeks. Look at chapter 11 for a moment. Look at chapter 11, verses 7 through 11. All I'm asking you to do is look at what the Bible says. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 7. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were what? You with me? The rest were hardened because they weren't chosen. I know that hurts. It's up in the clouds, but you got to accept what God says. He continues on, just as it is written, God Gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. We're going to see some teachings of Jesus in just a little bit where he says exactly this. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and see not, and bend their backs forever. I say then... They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now he's talking about the Jews. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. This is how God's doing it. By his divine, infinite, incomprehensible wisdom, this is what God is doing. Now jump over to verse 25. One more verse here. for i do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery lest you be wise in your own estimation watch this that a partial a partial what you with me hardening that a partial hardening has happened to israel why until the fullness of the gentiles has come in that's what god's doing in the world today that's where That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. That's why this church exists. He's bringing in any Jews here? No. He's bringing in Gentiles. And he has partially hardened the Jewish nation so that the Gentiles can come in. This is God's plan. And it's not by your pedigree. It is by God drawing you. Now let's go back to chapter 9 of Romans That's the discussion so far. We have covered most of this, and we've just layered a little bit upon it, repeated some of it so that hopefully we all understand a little more clearly. But he kind of gives a summary statement then in verses in verse 30, 31, and part of 32. So let's look there. What shall we say then? So he's saying, this is what we should say then. Here's the statement. That kind of sums it up. Verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. The, what you thought was an illegal immigrant, they weren't just looking for a loophole in the Constitution. They heard the news that there was a clause in the Constitution that said all they had to do was come in and do whatever it be with the gospel. It is trust in Jesus and you will be a full citizen. When they heard that, they attained righteousness, as you're going to see, by faith. But continue on. But Israel, verse 31, pursuing a law of righteousness, do you see, back up to 30. Let me, let me just nail that down here in verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attain righteousness, even the righteousness, which is by what? Faith. Yep, And verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. That's just another way of saying they didn't get it. They didn't find it. Because they were trying to obey the law and thinking that they had their pedigree going for them and their performance. We can't think that the gospel says that if we are just good enough or we obey the right laws or we belong to the right group, pedigree, or we live a good life and most people you talk to, if you ask them, are you going to heaven when you die, what will they say? Most people will either say yes or they'll say, well, I'm not sure, but I think so. And if you ask them why, what will they say? Well, I've been a good blank all my life or I'm good enough. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I'm better than most, and I think I'm going to get there, and God's just going to say, yeah, you're a pretty good person. Come on in. Most people believe that about themselves. That's not the gospel. It is not by pedigree. It is not by performance, is it? So let's make sure we finish this. They did not arrive at that law, verse 32. Why? Here's the explanation. Because they did not pursue it by faith or out of faith but as though it were by works. So does everybody understand those are the two possible ways, two of the possible ways that we can misunderstand the gospel? Born into the right group, I'm a really good person. Or I'm really religious. It's faith, trusting in Christ. Everybody comes the same way. That was the design from the beginning. It was, it was the design for Abraham, and Abraham did what? Believed God, and it was reckoned to him as Righteousness. It's always been by faith. Well, then my Leviticus? Why do I have to read? <laughs> yeah, God had a purpose for that at that time to create for himself a nation that he would protect and stay the way it was and cohesive so that Jesus could be born into it. But then it was going to from the Jew, to the Jew first, also to the Gentiles, the gospel was going to explode. And here we are, Gentiles being brought into the church. Now, the next part, we're going to see some of what we've already studied in the words of Jesus himself and a few of the other apostles. I am going to ask you to turn to a couple places in a moment, but let's talk about now what I think the main thing we need to talk about this morning to apply this to our own lives and our church, and that is the stumbling stone. So look at the end of verse 32. They they pursued it by works, not by faith. Now watch this at the end of verse 32. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes Isaiah again. Behold, I lay in Zion, that's in Jerusalem, in the place where the people of God lived. I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Who's the stone of stumbling? Jesus. So God sent his son, laid him in Zion, laid this cornerstone, a precious stone, but the Jews stumbled over him. And so let's look at some of Jesus' own words here. So keep your right hand in Romans chapter 9 if you want to turn with me and go back to Matthew chapter 21. If you're reading your Bible, ideally every day, if you're reading your Bible consistently, as best as you can, the, the, one of the beauties of that is you're going to see this stuff over and over and over again. You'll see it in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs. You'll see it in the Levitical laws, Exodus. You'll see it in the Old Testament. You'll see it in the New Testament repeatedly. This is not, what Paul's teaching here is not mystical theology. This is clear biblical teaching. So let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. It's going to be kind of a long reading, so follow along with me. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. And then he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. And the vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Well, again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, And they did the same thing to them. So afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, certainly they'll respect my son. Who's he talking about? Can you already tell? And and how about the first slaves and servants? The prophets came to Israel, warned them. Then he said, certainly they'll listen to my son. And so they send Jesus. Verse 38, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. When he comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, these Jewish religious people thought, oh, you know, they're like David listening to the story. And, you know, they've got it all right. They can answer the question correctly because they don't get it yet. And they say, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. There's the right answer. Who's Jesus talking about? Them. Then Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? Now he quotes the same scripture Paul's dealing with. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is God's plan. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it, i.e., the Gentiles. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. At the the end of this, I was explaining it to someone once, and and they said, well, how how do you know that that's talking about them? How, how, How can you know that? Look at the next verse. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they saw it then they sought to seize him but they feared the multitudes because they held him the multitudes held him to be a prophet. So clearly that's the meaning of that passage. The stumbling stone. Uh, Peter, now, go back to Romans chapter 9 where your right hand is, put your left hand in there, go forward to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. It's a beautiful passage about the church, about who we are. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. You Ready? Peter is talking to Christians, and he said, Coming to Jesus, coming to him, as to a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, Christians, are as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing this morning. We're offering up singing, praying, listening to his word, spiritual sacrifices. For, and he quotes the same passage, this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Now, continue on. This precious value, then, is for us, for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Now, watch this. This is the sovereignty of God. And to this doom they were also, what? Appointed or destined, depending on your translation. This all fits with the clear teaching of Jesus, of Paul, of Peter. So, how are we going to begin to understand this and apply it to us? And I want to focus in, I think we all kind of get it. It's not by your pedigree. Everybody kind of get that by now. Paul has really taught it thoroughly in Romans. We, it's not by your pedigree. It is not by your performance. It's by faith in Jesus Christ, believing that He died on the cross. I could go through the whole st- all the steps of the gospel, but I think we all kind of get that, don't we? It's trusting in Jesus, what He did. But what about this stumbling stone business? I think that's where we need to spend the rest of our time fleshing that out and seeing, first of all, how did they stumble? How is the church today apt to stumble, and how can we stumble? So let's do that. And I've got a simple solution here. So questions. Do I understand who God is? Do you? How are you going to find out who God is? This book is about God. Paul is talking about who God is. Do I understand how God works? Found in the same place. Do I understand the essence of the gospel? I think most of us do. How to be saved and how to be sanctified. You're back in Romans now. You're in chapter 9. Just look back at chapter 8 for a second, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To become conformed to the image of his Son, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. We're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus finally and fully when we are resurrected, when Jesus returns. But right now, he is in the process of, and we'll study that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He is right now, trans- by the Spirit's work within us, transforming us into the image of Jesus. And so, how does he do that? We have to Understand how Jesus is a stumbling stone in order for us to understand how we are going to be sanctified and made more like Jesus. We can dance around and play church. We can read parts of the Bible and ignore others. We can create a God in our own image and a Jesus in our own image according to our desires. We can do that and look like Christians. But if you're a serious disciple of Jesus and your desire is to become more like Jesus every day, then you've got to understand how Jesus is a stumbling stone. And you've got to deal with that, honestly, as you look in the mirror. But in order for us to understand, I think, how we can apply this, we have to understand how they stumbled. Uh, How did the Jews stumble? What, What was the issue? What was the problem? Hold your your hand here. Go back to the Gospel of Luke. This is the last place I'll make you turn. Go back to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Verse 8. Chapter 8. I'm sorry. Chapter 8. Now, again, this is the beauty of reading your Bible every day. If you were reading the Bible according to the calendar that we gave you at Christmas, you would have read all of this last week. As I'm reading the Bible, I'm saying, oh, Proverbs, Psalms, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels. Oh, that fits with what Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 9. That helps me understand Romans chapter 9 better. It's not just Paul off on a tangent. It's Jesus teaching. So look at Luke chapter 8, verse 10. Okay, why did Jesus teach in parables? Let me ask you a little pop quiz. Why did he teach in parables? Almost... Everyone answers, because Jesus was just a down-to-earth guy who talked in simple terms that farmers and people of the land who were poor people, they could all understand everything that he taught. He wanted to make it easy for them to understand. Is that why Jesus taught in parables? Sorry, that isn't. That's sometimes true of the parables, but listen to what Jesus says about why he taught in parables. Parables. The disciples, verse 9, began questioning him. He had just taught him about the sower and the soils, that parable. And his disciples began questioning him as to what his parable might be. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That's why I'm here explaining it to you. But to the rest, in parables. Why? In order that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Ouch. That's God. That's God's plan. That's the way God was doing it then and and part of the way he's doing it today. Just that's Jesus. It's his words. Now go ahead to chapter or same, same place. Verse 26. Watch, watch what Jesus does here. This is going to be kind of long, so I'm going to go really fast, but you'll follow along. You're familiar with the story. So they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, we're trying to, why am I reading this? We're trying to understand how Jesus is a stumbling stone to the Jews and then to us. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Because Jesus had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard and yet he would burst the fetters and be driven by the demons into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were entreating. Now you want to talk about the Lord working in mysterious ways. Why would Jesus sit and negotiate with a bunch of demons? If I were Jesus, I just would have destroyed him right now. Watch what he does. Let Jesus be Jesus. Let God be God. He's God. So they were entreating him, verse 31, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now there was a herd, herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreated him to permit them to enter the swine. What does Jesus do? Gives them permission. And the demons came out from the man, entered the swine, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and were drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they became what? Frightened? This is getting scary here. This is weird. This is uncomfortable. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well, and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding distance asked him to what? Stay here. We want to worship you and serve you, Lord. Is that what they said? What did they say? They asked him to depart from them for they were gripped with great fear. So he got into his boat and he returned. Stumbling block. They stumbled over Jesus himself when he was in their midst, performing a miracle, revealing himself, revealing the glory of God in the way that God ordained that it would be revealed. It all happened and the people stumbled over it. Why? What does Jesus do that makes people stumble over him? Look at chapter 9. We're right in Luke, chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. Jesus does not make it easy on people. Let, let me take a break. Before we read chapter 9, listen to this. Jesus, the reason he's a stumbling block is, just think about it. You need to go home and meditate on this and, and just pray about this. Why is he a stumbling block? And the answer has something to do with he threatens us. He threatens what we want. He threatens our life. I did a couple of funerals lately. One of them was for a believer, and it was filled mainly with believers. The other one, probably not so much. And I had to present the gospel very differently in those two contexts. And I prayed hard to know how to do it. And it was way easier in the first one than the second one. So I prayed, how do I do this winsomely without compromising and watering down? How do I do this? But they asked me to do the funeral. So they're going to get the gospel. That's why I'm there. And I might not make everybody my friend. And so I prayed about it, and I do believe God directed me to how I ought to present, and I did. But it felt like I was in the dentist chair with no Novocaine. And he was pulling teeth. That's what it felt like. I think, I don't know what all he was doing. He had me there for his purposes. I believe seeds absolutely were planted. But Jesus is a stumbling stone. It's fine. Jesus is great as an add-on. Everybody's good with him being an add-on. When I was in college, I I took philosophy class. I wasn't a believer. I'd strayed from my upbringing. And I studied Buddhism and Zen and took all kinds of philosophy classes and yoga and all that kind of stuff. But all that time, I thought Jesus was the coolest of them all. Because I had a Jesus in my mind who was a hippie, and just nice to everybody and, you know, was tapped into the, the, you know, divine wisdom and all this kind of crazy. That's not Jesus. Everybody wants Jesus as an add-on. There are world religions that have Jesus as a figure in their religion, but not the Jesus of the Bible, not Jesus. Who is the way and the truth and the life? It's the exclusivity of Jesus himself and the exclusivity of his demands upon his followers that makes him a stumbling block. Right? If you're trusting in your pedigree, you're going to stumble over Jesus. If you're trusting in your performance, you're going to stumble over Jesus. If you're stuck in your life and you don't want to give it up, you're going to stumble over Jesus. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Now, hear these words. They are not easy words. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, that means die, to yourself, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world, but loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And I say to you truthfully, well, that goes into something else, so we'll stop there. Look at verse 57, chapter 9, verse 57. You know, we make it sound like Jesus just walked along healing everybody, made it super easy for everybody to follow. Jesus is a stumbling stone. To anyone who wants to keep their life, he's a stumbling stone. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Ooh, that sounds good, doesn't it? What does Jesus say back? Did he say, great, come on, let's go. He said, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you know what you're committing to? Do you understand what it means to be a Christian? And he said to another, follow me. But he said, well, permit me to go and bury my father. Jesus said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Lose your life. Verse six. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't know if I've done it. He's a stumbling block to me. There are areas in my life I still stumble over Jesus. Every time Jesus confronts the sin in my life, the desires of my flesh that I don't quite want to give up on because I like them and I'm familiar with them and they're my friends and I've enjoyed them for all of my life. Every time Jesus confronts that, I have to make a choice. Am I going to stumble now over Jesus? Am I going to just ignore? There aren't, there are many churches who will never Study Romans chapter 9. You will never go to chapter 9. If you do, there will be some, some kind of tricky explanation for why that isn't what it says. Stumbling block. So let's continue on. Verse 61. Another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said No. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, how this applies to each one of our lives, God is very merciful. He's very patient. He is trans- if you're trusting in Christ, you've been born again. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. He is transforming you from the inside out into the image of Jesus. And all along the way, you're going to be confronted with moments where you're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to... Submit to God's sovereignty. Am I? Jesus is a stumbling block to being our Savior because we want to trust in our own pedigree and our own performance. He is a stumbling block to be our Lord because we do not want to give up our life. His exclusivity and his demand for exclusivity of our devotion, our allegiance, our love, our obedience to him makes him a stumbling block. So the, the, the solution is simple. Wherever Jesus, who is the truth, collides with our sin and our flesh, we must decide either to submit to God's sovereignty or to stumble over him. And be disappointed. But he promises that whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. I have, he has never disappointed me. Once, I, once he grants me repentance and I let go of that sin, I have never been disappointed. I've never looked back and longed for that sin to be back and active in my life. So Peter wrote, as I quoted this last, this is First Peter 5, 6 and 7. Peter said, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. But you've got to, James says, be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Then he will exalt you at the proper time. You've got to go through the humbling repentance first. We have to do that. It's hard but he will grant that to you if you want it. If you will pray for it, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now that's going to cause anxiety because I don't want to give up on all that stuff. But cast that anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He will take care of you. You will not be disappointed. Some of you, are you dealing with the sin in your life this morning that's come to your mind? Oh, has the Holy Spirit brought something to your mind? It's like, Jesus wants me to get rid of that. I'm sure we've all got him. We have to make a choice. Otherwise, we're going to stumble over him. And I'm not saying then you'll be lost. If you're saved, you're saved. You're one of his chosen ones. Okay, but do you want to keep banging your head against the wall? Do you want to stay in the school of hard knocks all your life? As soon as we submit to his sovereignty, he blesses us with freedom. And then we can experience deeper the joy of the Lord, who is our strength. And, and all the blessings that will come for us if we will we will not be disappointed. And then finally, just accept this. All these Uh, difficult to understand things that we've come across in Scripture, all these teachings that you might be sitting out there thinking, that guy up there is a crazy man. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And it's not always comfortable and it's not easy to understand, but it is what it is. That's the truth. And Jesus said, you will know the truth and what will happen. The truth will set you free. Period. So I pray that as you bow your heads now, just this is part of God's plan. This is God's plan for your life today. You're here because he wanted you here to hear this, for whatever reason. So I pray you don't stumble over Jesus. I pray that if you bow your heads and just meditate on this for a little bit, that if the Holy Spirit made you aware of something in your life, bow your heads now and just pray. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Ask for his help. Ask for him to grant you repentance. You cannot repent on your own. Ask for his help. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. He who knocks, the door is open. So just ask God. He is generous. He is loving. He wants you to become more like Jesus. He wants you to repent of that. Submit to him.